with a, a lot of great points with a bullet. Oh, <laughs> whoa! I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> Okay. It was really funny you just said that because I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. And I was ready to laugh at you and you said it. <laughs> Damn it. All right, you want to lead us back in? Three, two, one. From the San Fernando Valley, this is the McShroga Cast, a film podcast where we're sometimes right, sometimes wrong but always interesting. Here are the guys. Welcome to the McShank Dome 2015. Two film combatants enter one... Uh, leaves? I don't know. I'm staying victorious. here. You're, the viewer will be... The listener will be the judge about who emerges victorious oh. in this discussion. Well, that lovely voice you heard right over there was the one and only Clayton Shank. Hello. Film aficionado. Film yeah. snob, you might say. Film snob to those yeah. who know me the best. Film genius who hardly know me at all. <laughs> well, and, those of you uh, listening. That booming baritone was Ryan McCarran, my uh, compadre in cinematic crime ever since 2008 when we first recorded our top ten list. Aww. That was almost That was about seven years ago, Ryan. We've upgraded since then. We have two microphones We've now. Quite upgraded now, and, huh? And we have a microphone holder instead of a red Dixie cup, <laughs> or just our hand. Just or just hand. our hand. There's a hand that sits there, and then the microphone. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a lot better. Um, I lovingly I refer to it as an economical, yeah, podcast. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were very much at the forefront of podcasting, really. Right. And podcasts began with us. They've only really gotten bigger since then, but. You can kind of point to that section, that time point in time. It, it started very much with mm. us then, and it took off from there. At the very least, this is the, uh, I guess, annual tradition now of um, ranking the top ten films of the previous year. We gave ourselves a little bit of time to make sure that we saw enough things to fill out a list. Um, something that our fallen comrade the roga in the former mcshroga cast this, mike baroga this used to be called the mcshroga cast and the roga referred to mr mike baroga who decided to sit out this year after about six of those seven years joining in with us and yeah. mike we just want to say we love you mm -hmm. thank you for all those great years of top tens well of 10 films listed <laughs> in a general order oh that's right mike decided not to rank his list two years in a row <sighs> And has received our continuous ire ever since. Uh, but that's none of that's none of my business. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Ryan is dying of plague. This is actually his make a wish show. I'm gonna believe I I'm gonna blame Mike for that one. <laughs> so pretty much what we do, I mean, well let's we can kick it off here. Um we kind of wanted to go over a little bit of kind of the year that was 2014, not only with our list of films, but also, you know, just talking about what film was in 2014. You know, themes that may have, have, have cropped up or, you know, anything kind of else that sticks out to mm. you. Is there anything that, that you can think of? Yeah, I, I want to say as a whole, I think this was a weaker year for me as opposed to at least the last three or four years. Maybe I put this about on par with our 2009 Mm -hmm. edition of the show when did that never make it to air is that the one that never made it to air the audio was terrible and we never aired it yeah okay. we just we scrapped it uh you know i had movies in that list like 
Trick or Treat and uh, Paranormal Activity and movie, movies I really like but normally probably wouldn't make a list. And I think, I think that speaks to just the the lack of maybe great films that year. Mm-hmm. Whereas 10 through 13 I thought were generally fantastic years for film. And this year I can kind of see some of those movies maybe being honorable mentions on most lists, kind of you know breaching the list this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were basically there was a few films I loved and a lot of films I liked. Whereas previous years there were maybe seven or eight films on the list I absolutely loved. That made it hard to kind of pick and choose where everything was going to be ranked and everything like that. Because I would actually say it was actually easier for me to put together a list. Generally, I agree with you. You know, as a whole. I think there's a couple of great films. I think it's more top-heavy this year. Um, I kind of think 2013 was, or um, 2011, I'm sorry, was top-heavy as well. There were some really good ones at the top right. for me. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. But I think that it was actually easier for me to rank everything, which kind of speaks to just, you know, everything. Maybe this is just something that it just slotted all in together. Maybe it just sort of happened that everything yeah. slotted perfectly. Um, you know, because I don't have any. So there wasn't as many dilemmas where you're like no, pulling I mean, your hair out between two films yeah. for a certain spot. Yeah, it's I, I didn't have that many Sophie's Choice moments, right. but one and two, and I'll bring it up a little bit when we get to it. But those are a little bit interchangeable for me. But who knows? It may flip. Yeah. I, you know, I I reserve the right to change this list of just because it's in audio form doesn't mean of it's course. set in stone. Just don't do it around me. Absolutely not. You yeah, know, I'm a kind of in the same boat. Uh, my one and two probably could be interchangeable based on the time at which I saw them and like my number one movie I saw after my number two movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I were to watch them say in the reverse order, just on a you know doing a little double header at home or something, they might kind of inch past each other in the opposite direction. So that's kind of, we are kind of beholden to when we see movies, I think, yeah. because we, I would say we don't really revisit movies a lot during the year, mm-hmm. at least most of them, and so we kind of forget why we really love them. In terms of themes that also occurred, I think something that really cropped up, and I think it sort of happened, maybe we didn't go into it thinking that it was going to happen, but it was, um, you know, films reflecting a lot more the time period that they're that, that we're in now you know you look at a film like selma you you know in in contrast with all of the um i'm actually rooting all my notes on here on that film um <laughs> but you know with the ferguson things that happening in ferguson could not be more timely and, yeah and, and and it was sort of by accident it's I mean, impossible to predict, to predict that. that yeah or even you know uh, why would you want to even seize upon that is yeah. you know but it did work out that a movie like Somewhat just could not be more topical with mm-hmm. the, the the events of Ferguson and of New York. and But it completely works out well that, that that's what happened. You know, mm-hmm. that, that that's the the, t- the the timber that the film is able to evoke from us. Right. Um, well, without any further ado, with that said, we should probably get into said list. Um, so we're going to go ahead and just alternate. We're going to start with Clayton. He's going to give his number 10. I'll give my number 10 and so on and so forth. We'll do some honorable mentions and some of our worsts at the end. Those are a lot of fun to, to you want to stick around. If to Mike those. was here, he'd be giving his first film. Yes, his number, his first, well, last, but also for, I don't know. It could have been released first in the year. That's true, right? Or, or it, it could, could be just, the could first just... uh, movie he drew out of an envelope. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> happened. So just, just kidding, Mike. We, we love, love you, Michael. Um, so without any further ado, Clayton, what is your number 10 movie of 2014? Well, sticking with the topical theme, my number 10 is actually Selma. Oh. Uh, this. Uh, oh, by the way, I should mention, we don't know each other's list. This is the first time that we're actually going to be hearing each other's list. So 
because right. I did that amazing intro right. that dovetailed perfectly into the number 10 film. You would think that might have been planned ahead of time. No, it was not. It was a complete surprise. So, Selma, number 10. Selma is my number 10. And i got to tell you that any, uh, any film that is somehow involved, any film that is somehow involved Oprah Winfrey, I'm inherently skeptical of. Agreed. But uh, this film is actually pretty damn good. Uh, I think I admire it for many of the same reasons I admire Lincoln from 2012, mm. uh, the 2012 uh, Spielberg film. And that is that it would be a fool's errand, I think, to try and capture Martin Luther King Jr. and all of his complexity and importance in a single film and instead focus on something he did in a much larger context that really he really earns his legacy in front of your eyes. And what uh, director Ava DuVernay did with Selma is she put him in the middle of one of his most important campaigns back in 1965 that eventually led to uh, President Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act of, of that same year, 1965. And where King really started cementing home his legacy as one of the greatest civil rights activists that the United States has ever known, where he, uh, he decided to start a a march from i think it was uh from selma to montgomery alabama uh and what was really fascinating about this was not really i feel like what they the martin luther king they give us isn't the one we were really expecting maybe the one who's kind of booming who gives all the speeches i mean that's kind of that's here in this movie yeah but what i was really impressed about was all the moments of doubt that are in this movie Mm -hmm. there are plenty of times when he honestly does not know what to say and i'm thinking of one scene where he confronts a uh an elderly elderly man whose uh son or grandson i'm not sure was just killed in a uh in some kind of activist thing they just did and he goes to comfort him in the morgue where the grandfather has just seen the body and he does not know what to say and eventually the words come to him and he says something with his usual dynamite prose but it was really the silence that was the most captivating part of that whole interaction because he really could not find the words. Um, That's a really interesting point. I, yeah. I, I really love how the marches, the three different marches, that it was only supposed to be one originally, but because of circumstances that developed during, became three marches from Selma to Montgomery. The first one, I really love how this, this speaks to the confidence that du- DuVernay has in her film where she doesn't even include Martin Luther King in this march, whereas I think that a lesser film of this same stripe would have somehow shoehorned him into that scene. Mm-hmm. It's He's actually watching it from home on his TV. Yeah. You know, and so that really impressed me, the confidence DuVernay had in actually excluding him from that. And the degree of just brutality and violent unrest that unfolds at these marches, I mean, especially the first one. The first one is where King really displayed his aptitude for knowing how to work the media over, because that's almost exactly what he wanted. You know, he wanted it to be the spectacle. He wanted all the TV cameras there, so he could cast this wider net and let the rest of the world know what was actually going on and try and uh, implicate the rest of us along with Alabama. Mm-hmm. So that was a uh, was really astute, and I, I love how DuVernay shoots that. I mean, it's just brutal. It's almost like these, you know, many of them cops mm-hmm. <laughs> running these black people down in the middle of the road just for using just for using their right to protest and to yeah. march. You know, stunning stuff that obviously, as we just mentioned, could not be more relevant today. Mm-hmm. Oyelowo is really, really 
captivating here. I think that is one of the bigger snubs of this year's Oscar race is yeah. him not getting mentioned. Uh, um, Selma, my, my number 10, I think a good place to start us off. Good pick. Well, my number 10 is a film called Inherent Vice. Number ah. 10, the new Paul Thomas Anderson journey. Movie I did not see. Um, well, I'll tell you all about it, Clayton. Please. It, um, this film, I think it's it's a, a notch below, I think, his other greatest, you know, great works. I'd even include The Master in there as well. I think it's even a, a little bit below that. Right. It's, it's actually the most, I think, popcorn of his films it's kind of the lightest it's still it's funny because the master was probably his least accessible film it was yeah um but th- th- this one you'll hear a lot of people talk about oh it's so confusing it doesn't make any sense and you know you're kind of wandering through and that is entirely true i think if you kind of know that going in if you expect that coherency yeah you'll be disappointed but if you expect it to not make much sense and make it more about the journey and not the destination I think you'll have a great time with it. It takes place in Los Angeles in the 1970s, so it's a great um, time period to be in. Uh, I liken it actually a little bit to American Hustle last year. Okay. Just, uh, just really crystallizes a, a fantastic time period with fashion, just with politics, and um, yeah, I mean, and every character has their own nuance, and every character is very layered. Josh Brolin is in it; he's in wonderfully, he's fantastic, he's hilarious in it. Um, it's really bold for him to actually just tackle this source material in the first place because it seems like it w- if it was confusing watching it on film, it would probably even be twice as confusing reading it in a book. You know, you're sort of because he t- he's uh, uh, he plays a detective who takes on different cases and then the different cases as he goes along start intersecting and moving over on top of each other and they start getting layered and this one runs in with this one and. You can kind of keep track for about 40 minutes or so, and then by the rest of it, you're kind of like, well, I'm just going to give it up for for Just go with the flow, man. Um, It has a sheen of cool over everything, and and it's it's really, like I said, that speaks a lot to the time period. Um, It feels like a grown-up Big Lebowski. If you can imagine that, he <laughs> play, he I, plays, I, I guess yeah, the Big Lebowski I wouldn't consider mature on most levels. Yeah, but he played, you know, the the, the character that um, Joaquin Phoenix plays is this kind of stoner guy, sort of thrust into the middle of this maybe unwinnable situation or just a situation that he's way over his head. Um, and so it's actually, I think it almost seems to me like a Philip Marlowe kind of character. Very, very, very like similar. It, yeah. yeah. And I think it's actually the funniest of his films. I would say, I mean, I think Boogie Nights has funny moments and they all have little bits and pieces, but this is pretty funny throughout. Okay. I think. And so I would definitely recommend seeing it. I think my number 10, if you can get over the confusing aspect of it, it's definitely mm-hmm. worth a see. Cool. Yeah, no, that's one of the movies I, re- I really regret it. I knew it was going to be a huge time commitment, and I can probably only see it in theaters right now. Yeah. And so I just didn't get around to it. But I will now, now that you, you should. Now that you have spoken you highly should, of it, definitely. sir. My number nine is Ida. This is a, uh, a Polish film set in the 1960s. Uh, the way that I kind of start talking about this movie is how many war films do we get? We get four war films innumerable. Yeah. Right? They're always focusing on the war itself in some aspect of it. But how many films do we get set in the aftermath of war? So this is a movie about a nun who is just about to take her final vows. Who She's played by this actress named Agata Zebukowska. Wow. Pronunciation, question mark. <laughs> They're going to get, the names hopefully are going to get a lot easier as we go through. Not in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I meant I meant as we go through the list. We're, we're at Oyelowo in the first one. And then... Well, let me let me further compound this by saying it was directed by Paweł 
Polikowski. So Anna, she's a young nun who's just about to take her final vows when she learns of a very dark family secret dating back to the Nazi occupation of Poland in the 1960s. And the Poland that we get in this movie, it's functional, it's operating, but you can almost sense that it's been rebuilt of the rubble of the war. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a functioning, thriving city, but it's at the very core, it's still broken. Um, so this Anna character, she's was actually a, the actress playing her was actually a, a discovery. Someone just kind of found her in a bar and was like, hey, you look like you'd be good on film. Um, she plays it very well. She is this kind of laconic character who is almost, in her looks and in her acting, almost a blank slate. She's kind of been sheltered the whole time in her religious trappings, and she doesn't really have any experience of the outside world. This is, at its core, I think a really haunting film, not just because of the imagery it captures, but the the volumes it speaks about, you know, the devastation and the wake that's left by war. This character of Anna, she gets this letter from her last remaining relative, an aunt named uh, Wanda, who basically, before she takes her final vows, wants to kind of just give her what she needs to know about her family backdrop and, like I said, some dark family history before she takes her vows and settles on this path for the rest of her life. And... The movie focuses on these two, and they're a very atypical kind of odd couple. Like, Anna is just this, you know, the almost institutionalized girl who doesn't have a lot to say about anything, while Wanda is kind of this, exudes this independence and this kind of bohemian freeness that is kind of ex- experienced all of the harshness the world has to offer um, when it's at its most unforgiving. Wanda kind of informs Anna about these very, very dark and disturbing things, like how her parents were being hid during the war and that she's actually Jewish, which is interesting. And the, the look on the, on Anna's face when the, she drops this bomb on her is just, is just breathtaking. I mean, imagine your entire religious identity being changed in one sentence. Um, and to go into a more what I think be to ruin the charms this movie has to offer, but it's really a movie about identity and kind of how the events that shape us who we are. Um, it, it could have, the movie really ebbs and flows at a very consistent rate. And the ending I could have very easily seen come off as contrived where the, the filmmaker uh, would have done something that would have really compromised who Anna, who Anna is and her complex nature. But they really decided to go in a different direction that is somehow both safe and surprising that suggesting that Anna has finally, arrived at herself and who she really is, you know, albeit with some extra tread and uh, opened eyes for the first time. Um, so I really uh, I really recommend this film. It's devastating in some parts and contains the joie de vie that the most, you know, beautiful films have to offer in equal measures. Yeah, it's so on Netflix right now. Number too, nine is Ida. Yeah, it's uh, it's only 80 minutes. It's a quick watch, but okay. I think it packs a lot into those 80 minutes. Yeah, it's nominated for Best Cinematography as well as Best Foreign Film or Foreign Language Film. So that'd probably be one to check out at least before uh, the Academy Awards. My number nine is The Imitation Game. Ah, yes. A film I saw um, a couple of weeks back. Um, very, very, very a, a good performance by Benedict Cumberbatch. Schmenedick Bumbersnatch. <laughs> there I are call many. Him. There are many you could do. The, actually, the best way to do it, I read, is if you do it in tune with the Nickelback song "Photograph." That would mean yeah. I would have to listen to the Nickelback Benedict song "Photograph." <laughs> That's kind of the best way to to do that. Um, but he, you know, <laughs> he's been kind of known on the peripheral. I mean, he was in Star Trek, and he's shined in in projects like Sherlock and. I mean, you know, he, he, he has made a name with a certain pocket of people, but I think 
Dumbo Latch has arrived, my friend. It's, it's here. He's here to stay. He's going to um, let you know. Now that more people are seeing him for the great actor that he is, I think his performances have always kind of gone under the radar because you know Sherlock is just great in everything that he does, and so so this performance it's very subtle. It's so you, it's him in a restrained performance, but it really works for the type of film that it is. I mean, he is hiding something the entire film being um, a gay man in 1940s London, which was pretty much the worst thing that you could be. Yes. Yeah, so um, I mean, it, it's, it's akin to, you know, some, some countries blasphemy laws, you it know, really it's, is. it's just, it's, it, it compromises who you are at your very nature. So it's for him, awful. for him to hold back, you know, for him to always be hiding that, knowing that going in, and and for him to have to see him his pain throughout the film, it, it I think it's a very earned nomination. It's it's not one something that is very showy, but it's a performance that is a little bit more internal, and so I think that those performances kind of can get overlooked because they're not. It is kind of a part of this prestige you know, picture, though. It's, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's a Weinstein Brothers movie, right? Yeah. And it's you, you, you can clearly tell, you know, it's their, you know, it's their, their gun and for it to be like another King's speech. You know, yeah. something that is historical. You have a character overcoming adversity amidst this really important backdrop. And so it's definitely hitting a lot of the list of the same uh, things. Check, yeah. check well, marks. You know, to, but it, I mean, it, I will say, though, I like this movie a ton more than the King's speech. I totally agree. It was a story totally that needed agree. to be told and should have been told a long time ago. Yeah, and going off of that, it's it's again a character in a situation in World War II that I that I knew nothing about. So I mean, it shed light on that. It, you right. Know, and, and it and it really it it also shed light on the gays, the gay issues in the United States these days, and I'm sure mm-hmm. all over the world as well. Um, you know, great tension with it too. I mean, it, you would think that a man building the first computer. Essentially, yeah. Wouldn't really have that much tension, but there is a lot in both internally within the group that he was working in, right. as well as externally with the, the 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 army that he was working for, basically, trying to make sure. And that moment when they finally figure out what the missing piece is. Oh, it's great. It's, it's great. a wonderful scene. You know, everybody's that's been working it, it, take, it, it take, comes together it, and they it, it takes Turing being in his most uncomfortable place mm-hmm. a place of social congregation yeah it takes that kind of it, it takes somebody that he would normally never talk to mm-hmm. in his day-to-day life right. to get him to think about his problem in just in a, a certain way. tad different way mm-hmm. and it sparks yeah and it, i think that i mean for me if this the, it, i i kind of went between this film and the theory of everything um, which didn't make my list, but it was a little schmaltzy towards yeah, the end. But, was, but I think yeah. the difference. I mean, it, it seems the difference is that like the theory of everything. I think is a good movie with great performances. Right. And I think this is a little bit more solid with it's, very it, good performances. It's kind of like how I felt about Dallas Buyers Club, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, theory of Everything, where there's some great performances, although the movie I don't think does enough with. Like, they they are the reason to see the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're actually better than the movie that, yeah. that they're in. Yeah. So number nine, the imitation game. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it also, in addition to the, you know, you have the homosexuality theme, you also have the, uh, the gender role kind of theme where you mm-hmm. have the Kira Knightley performance, which yeah, think, yeah. one of her better roles, I have to say, um, I think she really meets the call here. It's also about, you know, not only Alan Turing, this genius mathematician code breaker, but it's also about, you know, the first female code breaker who is, treated as a secretary <laughs> yeah when they in fact they need to hide her as a secretary in order for her to actually work for the team oh it's from, un- from her parents it's unreal <laughs> yeah 
Um, so my number eight is the Grand Budapest Hotel oh. from uh, Mr. Wes Anderson, and uh, you you you're pretty attuned with my taste, Ryan. So you know this is probably a big thing for me. I'm not the big Wes, biggest Wes Anderson fan. No, I can see that. Um, yeah. I I really liked Fantastic Mr. Fox. I but I I've never been able to really connect with his movies. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm always held at arm's distance, and while I see the obvious skill and craftsmanship that is uh, going on, I never feel like I can fully get invested in what I'm watching. But that being said, I still didn't have that kind of emotional reaction that I usually look for with my prestige films every year, but I finally get why Wes Anderson fans love Wes Anderson, and that's because I think this is a really a singular artistic vision that's just lovingly crafted every every single frame of it painstaking um, detail it's amazing and, yeah. i mean the hallmarks of every anderson production is there you got the really balanced uh, ornate compositions the the deliberate almost race car camera work where it's just zipping around at almost seemingly like right angles into places that are it's, it's almost like you're just on this ride with the camera as it goes into rooms elevators down staircases whatever and you also have the oddball witty characterization um but what really separates this movie for me and why i think i fell so hard for it was the the sprawling story really and also the there's actually some real dramatic depth to this movie that he plunges into that i had not seen in some of his earlier films and maybe i have to rewatch rushmore or whatever it's been a while but i, I felt I felt tuned into his style really for the first time ever with this film. Um, I mean, really, this film, and I think rightfully so, I believe it has the most nominations of any of his films, I, I would think. Right. I mean, and it well deserved considering they crafted pretty much everything from scratch specifically <laughs> yeah. for this film. And yeah. so, I mean, the. You know, costume design and production design. He is like one that. of those auteurs you just immediately know you're watching his film. Yeah. Uh, just the way that he frames every shot, mm-hmm. just the way he moves the camera. It is uniquely a Wes Anderson film. And this one, uh, Ray Fiennes' character plays this famous concierge at an even more famous hotel in a fictional republic mm-hmm. called Zubrauka, set between the First and Second World Wars. And also focuses on his lobby boy named Zero. Mustafa, who becomes his kind of loyal friend and confidant, and I just could not stop smiling while this film was going on. Like it is just, it is a, it is a roller coaster ride, and you appreciate every bump it takes you on. And check out this supporting cast: Willem Dafoe as a mute hitman, F. Murray Abraham as an adult zero. I'm not sure how that works. They look nothing alike. Yeah. Um, Adrian Brody, Jeff Goldblum, Hardy Keitel, Jude Law, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman, Anderson Regular, Saoirse Ronan, Leah Seydoux, Tilda Swinton, and Tom Wilkinson. No, yeah. <laughs> this is a legendary cast. <laughs> and he's always kind of been able to do that. A lot of his films, at least since Rushmore, have been these big ensemble pieces. People seem to be lining up to want to work for him. He's almost He's got the Tarantino effect and the, yeah. P- P- the PTA effect where it's like, you know getting into his film that it's immediately going to put you on this spotlight mm-hmm. that you might have not got otherwise. And I think that this film, I did I did love this film as well. It's not on my list. Mm-hmm. It, it would have made my honorable mentions. But um, I just think, I mean, this is his best film since Royal Tenenbaums, I think. Okay. Um, and I thought that coming out of it too. And I mm-hmm. think Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums is as good a one-two punch for a director. I mean, you, I mean, Bottle Rocket was his first film really, but... Rushmore was kind of his big coming out party. So a right. one-two punch right off the bat, really. Yeah. Um, but I think that in the in past years, 
he does have a very uh, noticeable style, but I think that he sort of has fallen too much in love with that particular style. I can see how I think that if I was had been a Wes Anderson fan this whole time, I might have not reacted as strongly to this movie because I might have thought of it as like you know more of the same or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he clearly does have this little box that he's comfortable working in, and he has mastered it. Yeah, you know, and it might be about that time where I think people who have supported him can kind of start asking, well, when are we going to get something new? Yeah. And I, but I think that this film offered that even, because I mean, I, I, I put myself in that camp. Um, I enjoy Moonrise Kingdom. I enjoy this film way more. Um, and I think because it had that other emotional, cause he, he, he was getting to that point with Moonrise Kingdom. He mm-hmm. was getting to the point where he was marrying his style with the emotional tethers of life Mm. because his films from beginning, you know, all the way pretty much until Moonrise Kingdom and including a little bit in there, it was a lot about father figures and finding father figures and making, you know, father figures out of people who didn't deserve it. Um, But so that was getting a little bit old, (laughs) you Mm. know, the Darjeeling limited, it was kind of the end of it for me. Like, okay, let's, let's Let's move on. We've explored this theme enough. Let's move on a little bit. Um, but I think I think what's good about this one is that it is something different. It is something different in the fact that it it deals with a different theme, a different mm-hmm. time period. Yeah. He's making a period piece, which is something really he's is. never done. I mean, yeah. and that's some so he's able to get that style. I mean, the story spans decades. Right. You know, it kind of has this central beacon of the Budapest Hotel, but mm-hmm. the 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 characters within span decades just as the story does. And I think there is much more, like you said, emotional tether there than something like Moonrise Kingdom, which I was not a huge fan of. And it's more it kind of it kind of marries, I think, the wittiness of Fantastic Mr. Fox for me and just the the overall just sublime nature of Rushmore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of those movies smashed together for me. Um and I I find it hard to believe I, I'll like a Wes Anderson movie more than this because I honestly some of his movies have been a chore for me, but this mm-hmm. one I could have watched it for another hour, you know, yeah. like that's how, that's how well it was working for me. Well, my number eight is a film called Nightcrawler ah. starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Good choice. Yeah. And I think that when we look back in a couple of years and maybe even at the middle of this year, um, this is going to be the film that is underrated. And I think when people are going to go back oh, to yeah. it and it's, go, I think it's underrated now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I think in years past when you kind of think about, man, well, you know, why wasn't this movie you watch it maybe, or people who haven't seen it, if they watch it, and if you're like, wow, why, why wasn't this either nominated for more? Or why wasn't people talking? It's like you more? wouldn't, you know, if you, if you're not tapped into the pulse of film, you would need somebody to recommend it to you right. because you would never hear about it. Otherwise you never hear about it. And I think it didn't really do a decent job marketing itself or, right. you know, get, I mean, being marketed, but it's, you know, easily one of the top three performances acting wise from anybody this year. Yeah. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal with, he's very gaunt. His eyes are bigger than any other eyes. They almost look really uh, cartoonish. They really do. They're bulging out of the skull. I mean, his face is so thin that it already, it draws out his already big eyes already. Um, And that, I mean, the performance right there, that's the performance is in his eyes. You know, that's, I mean, that's something that silent film actors did, Yeah. you know, that, that you can look at as like the, the, the performance and everything is with, is right in there mm-hmm. in that section. And I think yeah. that that's something that, you know, that, that's something that's really going to stick with people. Um, anytime they watch it, he is so unnerving and, but so cunning and brilliant in a way 
that yes, you yes. almost kind of you almost want to forgive him for the things that happen throughout, but then you sort of realize, well, I'm a human being and I can't really. So <laughs> yes. when you see the film, you'll understand, or if you've seen it, yeah. you know. Um, I even think Renee Russo was was passed over. I think she. She's, the, a, she's quite good in this. She is. And I think she should have gotten the Meryl Streep nomination in Supporting Actress. I, know, I feel like the Academy, you know... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, in a perfect I, I, world, I, I, she would I think have gotten they, I think they would nominate Meryl Streep even in a year she wasn't acting. Because they just right. assume she's going to be giving an award-worthy Meryl performance. Meryl Streep at home. <laughs> Meryl um, Streep watching TV eating Cheetos <laughs> for Best Supporting Actress. Um, but they... I think there's a lot of themes at work here as well. It taps into the shock culture that we have created with this 24 hour news cycle that we have. It's so relevant. Yeah. All with, of this with the, it bleeds, it leads sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, it's even kind of a, it's a weird thinly veiled look at capitalism too, just in terms of the American wanting, dream, the almost. American dream and just wanting to get ahead, no matter whose heads you step on, no matter yeah. what happens. And that way just, it's very satirical. Yeah. I think. And I mean, it even deals a little bit with invasion of privacy, you know, I mean, mm. it, it, how, no matter how despicable or, you know, it's, there's always, he's always there. He's always got that camera in your face if you're in a car accident or if you've been murdered mm-hmm. 20 minutes before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of themes at work there. Right. I mean, the, the, the screenplay is crackling and I think yeah. that it's, 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 it, it probably won't win the Academy Award, but I think it should definitely be in, in, in high consideration. Uh, but yeah, number eight, Nightcrawler. For Incredibly me. rich film. It'll probably come up later. All right. <laughs> uh, my, num- my number seven is, I think, the cinematic achievement of the year. This is Boyhood from Mr. Linklater, or as I've been calling it, the Extraordinary Ordinary, or the Colossal Mundane. It kind of has stuff that doesn't seem so riveting on its face, but... I think is incredibly nuanced and, and rich when you finally dig into it. Um, the logistics that went into this 12 year long odyssey of filmmaking are just truly mind boggling. It really is. Yeah. The amount of commitment and, and foresight it would take to get so many actors on board for so long is something that I, I can't even imagine. Like, how do you get people to fund this movie? You know? Oh yeah. You'll get your payoff 12 years later. Like, yeah. how do you even do that? Right. Uh, but he, if you're Richard Linklater if and you have a vision, <laughs> then yeah, you then you then you believe in it. He's the link, man. I tell you, I love everything this man does. He is definitely in my top five filmmakers. Um, Do you prefer the nickname Dicky Links or Dicky Linky? <laughs> I just I just went with the link, but you're forcing me to reassess right now because yeah. those are both pretty good. Because you have the the rhyming with with the inky and the inky, but Dicky Links, it kind of sounds like a. Like a uh, beef jerky or something. Or, uh, you know, a fedora-wearing detective <laughs> yeah. or something. Dickie Links. Dickie Links! All right. Yeah. It's like it's like the B, the B movie Dick Tracy. Dickie Links it is. <laughs> we'll go with Dickie Links. Dickie Links from here on out. Um, this, is a, this is nearly a three-hour film of moments. Uh, I think Linklater knows that he's perceptive enough to where he knows that life's most weighty moments don't really announce themselves when they happen. You kind of only realize they happen in retrospect, when you're able to see things for what they really are with enough time to process them. Um, these moments, you know, they often, they don't announce themselves with a bang. It's more like a whisper at sometimes, and you don't realize till after that they absolutely crushed you. Um, some examples. Uh, early in the movie, uh, Eller, Eller Coltrane, I think is his name, is uh, the, kid, the, uh, the, star, yeah. the star of the film. He right. uh, There is a scene where... Him, his sister, played by Linklater's own daughter, Laura Laura Linklater, and 
his mom, played by Tr Patricia Arquette, they are about to move, and they are painting the walls of the... I assume you've seen this? Mm -hmm. Okay. They are painting the walls of uh, their house to kind of just get it ready to sell, and all three are taking part, and there's this point where they come up to that part of the wall with the notches for how that tracks how tall you get over, mm -hmm. over the years. Right. And... I think a lesser filmmaker would have emphasized this a lot because it is kind of a really touching moment. It can be an emotional center you can point to and say, we're going to expose this particular part. Right. Yeah. What Linklater does is he, he keeps the camera pretty far back, and you just see the kid kind of approaching this. You know, He's painting the wall around it. He gets to this part, and he stops, and he processes it for a second, like you know, looks at his mom, do I paint over this part too? And... What Linklater does is he just lets him paint over it in a wide shot. We don't even get a close-up of this. And it's just so identifiable. That's such a good moment, and I love how he captured it. Uh, right after that, when he's leaving with his mom and sister, he's driving away, and his best friend is biking behind them and waving to him, and he waves to him out the window, knowing he'll probably never see this kid again. Yeah. And I, I, I this is how things would really play out, I think, for a lot of people. It wouldn't be this grand opus celeb you know oh i love you i'll see you soon you know you're my best friend they just leave and they part ways mm -hmm. and patricia arquette's monologue at the end of the movie when uh eller coltrane's about to go off to college i think was just really 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 perceptive and incisive and uh quite frankly a profound monologue um is that where she just kind of breaks down she breaks down right. and she says i thought there'd be more um the editing by uh editor sandra adair uh Again, a lesser movie, I think, would have used captions to kind of mark the transitional period from when the kids are aging, you know? <laughs> I see a smile on your face. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, okay. I'll tell you in a second. Okay, so the um, the editing, I think, is so slick that it's sometimes you have no idea. It's very hard for you to tell that even time has passed because you have to kind of look for clues. Maybe his haircut is different. Yeah. Maybe they're playing a video game that didn't exist when the last segment happened. Maybe the dad, played by Ethan Hawke, who I haven't talked yet, is talking to them about why he loves Barack Obama. So, you yes. know, okay, now we're in 2008 or whatever. Okay. This is my biggest problem with this movie. Okay. It's so funny that you mentioned that because it was plainly obvious that they were like, this is this year now. And this is, you know, like, if they would have just maybe not mentioned the to the time period or... You know, I mean, I'm okay with showing when they go to Minute Maid Park and they're watching an Astros game with Roger right. Clemens. It's like, okay, yes, I as a baseball fan, I understand that this is like eh, 2004-ish. There were just so many times where they would go, so you know what, what? What was your top five summer movies of 2008? And it seemed it, it seemed a little hamfisted to me that they would go so far that they were trying to be like all right this is the year that it is now without doing those titles without having them there i would it's so funny that, that you brought that up i wasn't even going to bring it up and then you mentioned it and i just had to say something well ryan i would agree with you but then we'd both be wrong oh wow um these are these are fantastic character building moments not just for the kid but for his dad as well ethan hawk who i think when this movie starts probably just walked off the set of training day because <laughs> if you look at him it's like that's what he looked like around yeah, training yeah. day and that this would be a 12-year period this is like 
training day to before midnight, Ethan Hawke. Hmm. But I, I love these. These are moments I think that are moments that you remember in your life. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Like the president for the presidential election is yeah, happening this yeah. year, and and you know there are moments you're probably more keen on, like when he explains to them why like the Beatles is the greatest band ever, and he gives them like the Black Album, which is yeah. this really obscure album. I mean, those are definitely more kind of. You know, father-son conversations. I think that we were used to seeing, but talking about the car and if yeah. they're going to buy the car from, give you know, yeah. give them the cool car. No, it's, it's, it's funny yeah. you had that reaction to it because I, I, I just took it in completely in stride with what the movie mm-hmm. had developed at that point. And it I didn't just be, for a second. I, I may just be nitpicking it, but uh-huh. it, it, for some reason, it just stood out. It, it just struck you the wrong way. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. And mm-hmm. it, this movie, it didn't make my list. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it. I and I think it falls. You know, this kind of the same way you feel about Wes Anderson. I kind of feel about Dickie Links. <laughs> Is that you did not? I did. I just went there. Is that I, I? I appreciate the idea more than the execution. Okay. And I think that directing a film over twelve years, like you said, organizing everybody together over that amount of time is a huge achievement and Mm -hmm. i think that is completely i don't know if it's flying under the radar but i think for people that have made films just to have all that happen over a period of 12 years is amazing that that happened and from what i hear uh linklater actually had a deal written as a contract with ethan hawk saying that if he died over the course of this film that ethan hawk would take over directing Interesting. So they had this really planned out. Yeah, they really did. And, and it's and it's such a huge gamble yeah. go, going with this unknown child actor who I think is he's he's somewhere in the middle from where from the the performance I think I wanted to get. Mm-hmm. He is not bad enough to where it's distracting, but I think he a performance by an actor with a little greater range might have vaulted it up a little bit more. Um, maybe that's unfair to the kid, but I. I at the end of the day, I do think the kid is 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 fine for what the movie is trying to sell. Yeah, um, it's not about him putting in a, a, an Oscar worthy performance. It's about he him just, just putting a real performance. He just has to grow up. That's kind of it, you know. And he's going to do that anyway. And, and so the the the, idea, the experience of literally growing up with characters throughout the course of a film is something that. I mean, I know there's the there's that Seven Up series that has done this over the course mm-hmm. of years, where they revisit a certain group every of people years, every right. seven years. That's really interesting. But just in a single film, experiencing twelve years of characters' lives, um, seemingly in real time, it feels like is an experience that can't really be overemphasized. I think it's quite a remarkable achievement to have pulled this off. And and uh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I totally appreciate that for what it is. I just kind of needed it. I, I didn't feel like it had the emotional resonance that it has struck with you, either yourself yeah, or with for, other people. For me, the resonance was in the little moments that it captures that right. I think are so true to life and, and just so just brilliantly accentuated by almost not accentuating them. You know, they just they fly under the radar and the kid will look back one day and be like, oh, wow, remember when I just – remember when I left my best friend and we didn't even say goodbye? Mm-hmm. And it's just he doesn't think anything of it in the moment. He's just not even processing any of this. And then these are just some truly uh, life building, life affirming uh, little little glimpses that Linklater is able to put under a microscope for us all to see, which I think was just just fascinating. Um, boyhood, boyhood, in a nutshell, my number seven number film. Seven. To somewhat Ryan's dismay. But not quite. Not but really. It just it wasn't good enough to make my list. Like I said, I, well, I said it. I'm, I I, I, well, I'm I appreciate. This, what I'm glad it. this happened, Ryan, because yeah. I was it was it was damn too civil at this point. <laughs> 
Well, my number seven, we've already brought it up. Uh, it's Selma. Um, we're talking about Nightcrawler being criminally underappreciated in the Academy Awards. Selma, of course, is as well. Um, Abu DuVernay and David Oyelowo. Oyelowo. <laughs> I buy it. Yep. That'll play. Um, both deserve nominations. That just that's the yes. that is the you know that's the long and short of it. Um, you know, Clinton, you kind of brought up a lot of the the points that I had. I mean, the one thing and I, you brought up a little bit was is I do like that it's more of a it's not a macro look at right. his life. We could have easily just had a flat out biopic where he's a kid and then they go through. Would the not whole... nearly have had the same impact. I no, think. and it, but because this particular moment summed up the his, civil rights movement legacy, so well his legacy yeah and and you that's all you needed to have was this whatever month or two long month long period I, and and the, the thing is i think you know and the stuff i've heard about the historical inaccuracies of between dr king and the relationship he had with the president at that time lbj you know that that it's it, it's depicted in the film as sort of being more one-sided a little bit more combative you know dr king is doing a lot of the talking for the both of them and sort of trying to really push his message and push his needs onto the president rather than them trying to reach an agreement. And I think that's kind of rubbed some people the wrong way. I don't know if it's enough to maybe say, well, the historical inaccuracies are enough for me not to vote for it. Or I feel like there is some creative license that a director has to be able to work with in a film. And whether or not it's truly accurately depicting the relationship he had with Johnson. I, p- other people may feel differently. It's not a distraction to me. No, it, it, it doesn't. And it, it doesn't really bother me one way or the other. It is still a movie and it's still a movie like, at the end of the day. It's not a documentary. This is yeah. a fictional retelling of yeah. true to life story, but it still works within the context of the film and it shouldn't. And it works to drive the conflict and ultimately, the catharsis and the resolution. Mm-hmm. Amazing the way film works that way. <laughs> so that's my number seven, Selma. My number six is completely changing gears from Boyhood. This is The Raid 2, Berendahl. And I gotta confess, this is kind of a package deal entry into this list because I've been depressed ever since I omitted the first Raid film back in 2011 mm. from my list. Uh, if you are an action junkie or simply appreciate like the dirty and gritty kung fu movies of old and you have not seen the Raid films, get off your ass. Yeah. Gareth Evans returns directing, and his star, uh, I think I believe it's pronounced Iko Uwes, no, I'll put another pronunciation question mark there. Uh, he plays a SWAT cop. This is uh, an Indonesian film, Indonesian language with Indonesian stars. Plays a SWAT cop named Rama. And I got to say, like, this is, the Raid films... Well, I think you would agree with me that there have not been very many good video game films. No. Video games based solely on existing property. Mm, yeah, no. While there may not even be a single good film. I mean, I might point to Mortal Kombat That's as like it. a guilty pleasure kind yeah. of a movie, where it's still extremely entertaining, but you know what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but films like The Raid, and I think another film of this stripe, kind of, which is a film I admired but didn't really love, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, where it just nails the video game aesthetic in a movie you weren't even really expecting to do that. Yeah, the Raid absolutely. films are video games come to life. It is like, especially with the first film. I would say the first one more than the second. The first, one, the first film had this kind of more constrained narrative where 
the SWAT team had to infiltrate this high-rise building where this uh, drug lord was holding up and had his team of henchmen. And it was to the kind of the thing where they had to go from level to level to get to the top of the building, and they had to confront certain almost boss-like Bosses, characters yeah. <laughs> getting there. And this movie plays... It definitely has some of the video game elements there, but it's not quite as maybe satisfying in that light as the first film was. But there still has its touches. For instance, there are a couple boss-like characters in the second film that could not be more cartoonish. I mean, you got Hammer Girl, who just lays waste with two silvery, pristine hammers. Baseball Batman. Baseball Batman, (laughs) who I don't know why he isn't playing center field for the Yankees. uh, He's got quite a swing. He's got quite a swing, and his accuracy is is the stuff uh, million-dollar contracts are made of. Um, but so the story, if you want to go there, I mean, the primary draw of this movie is the fight scenes, but we'll get there. The story basically concerns this cop. He just lays waste to this potent, concentrated criminal underworld in this one building. And the second raid film picks off right where that left off and basically goes higher up the food chain to all these different predators who have taken a very keen interest in the events that that have transpired in the first film. And so, so Rama, his family now at risk, has to go undercover uh, and infiltrate the criminal underworld um, just to basically to protect himself, his family, and to finally, you know, step on these cockroaches for good. Mm-hmm. Um, so Evans kind of gives the second film this much greater canvas and even tries to, sh- to throw some, like, Shakespearean themes of <laughs> familial revenge and tragedy into the yeah. mix. And while those are – it's not really why you're going to see the film. I mean, they're it's fine. It's a nice touch, though, to have it you in You know, he, he tried. I give it to him. I mean, but the main draw of this film is – in its simplest pleasure is the fight scenes. Jesus, holy mother of God. Yeah. These fight scenes work on so many levels that I think you have to have a deeper analysis here. I would say even just, I would even go so far as to say the violence in general. It's ultra violence. It wasn't even, I mean, it's not even, because there, there are some brutal deaths in this movie that don't really have much oh. fighting in them, but they're just so impressive in their sheer brutality. I mean, it's almost standing ovation kind it of really stuff. It really is. It's like, a, it's like an orchestra, almost, that builds to a crescendo. And having wonderful fighters and wonderful choreography is is not always enough to make a great action film. You have to know how to direct it and how to shoot it for it to really come across. And it's so simple what Evans does here. I think it's a confoundingly simple trick he pulls off, which is really just true match on editing that you always know exactly where you are in space and time you know who's trying to hit who you know every punch that's being thrown every kick that's being thrown you always know where you are and that just is such a satisfying experience as a, as a, uh, a film watcher um he yeah like you just touched on he ups the ante in this film tremendously the fight scenes go on longer this is at least a longer film by an hour mm-hmm. compared to the first film the set pieces are much more complex and varied you got uh a bathroom stall in a prison. You got a a muddy prison courtyard, wandering yeah. yard. You got a kitchen, a subway, a nightclub, a restaurant, and the showstopper. This kinetic high speed chase that's really worth the price of admission by itself. I mean, this is just a a truly accomplished action action spectacle. I think it really blazes its own path, has its own identity. And quite frankly, embarrasses most Hollywood efforts yeah, it's pretty in fantastic. the same vein. It's pretty fantastic. I mean, if you can only watch one action film this year, watch The Raid 2 and watch it again. Again, and, just barely missed my list. It's, it's, it's on my, it'd be on my honorable mentions. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. It's, it's such an accomplished action film that it deserves a place on my list and it deserves a good place. 
So my number six, um, going in the violence vein, I guess. I don't sure. Know. We're trying to we're trying to connect it as best we can. Oh man, is, bring it um, on. Is uh, probably a film we'll see on your list, Gone Girl. Hmm. So um, it he made a uh, David Fincher makes a romance. He made a lifetime movie. Knocks actually. it out of the park. I tell you, it's uh, it's masterful trash. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, as best you can. That, describe that, that it, is a I compliment. Guess. I mean, yeah, that's a masterful treatment of trash material. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of another entry in uh, for a famous director just at the top of their game this year. I mean, you look back at this year, something that I guess we didn't really mention, but I mean, you know, you had Fincher, Nolan, Paul Thomas Aronofsky. Anderson, Wes Anderson, Aronofsky. You had all these great famous auteurs, auteurs making films this year. And I think, you know, this is one of the best uh, of, of any of them. Um, it's a deliciously twisted, super dark who done it. See what ah! I did there? Eh? <laughs> it's the last name of the character. Um, with fantastic acting. I mean, Rosamund Pike, she's, she's arrived. Bon- Bond girl now, now should be household name. What's funny, the only thing I really remembered her from when I was trying to think back was she was in that movie with Ryan Gosling and Anthony Hopkins, uh, Fracture? Fracture, remember yeah. That? That's the first time I ever remember seeing her in anything. Yeah. And you are 100% correct. She is a force of nature. In yeah. This. Well-deserved nomination for Best Actors. It keeps you guessing all the way through. Uh, it flips the notions you've created throughout uh, the film you're watching just on their heads, really. Yeah. I mean, and, and again and again and again. Yeah. Um, you know, because you see the you see the trailers for it, and it seems pretty straightforward. And then you realize that David Fincher's directing it, and you know he's just not going to make a straightforward murder mystery. There's right. going to be a lot of twists and a lot of turns. Yeah. Um, and the writer of the novel uh, actually ended up writing the screenplay as well, so she's actually adapting her Jillian own Flynn. work. Yeah. So she's actually, which I feel like doesn't happen very often. I feel like you, you maybe get a, a sole, you know, a, a dual writing credit or. A story by or written by you know but you don't actually i don't ever i can't remember a time when it actually is the same person actually mm. adapting their own screenplay or adapting their own book and right she does a really good job in taking bits from the book i haven't actually read the book unfortunately well mccarthy did it right with the counselor mark mccarthy okay well kind of well, no, 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 that's no, an original. No, you're film, right. Though. That was yeah, just a screenplay. That was just an original film. But, yeah, right. And that's actually one aspect of it going completely wrong, because <laughs> um, that movie is terrible. But the the idea of it is, and actually, it's funny you bring that up, is because there are things that maybe work on a page that maybe don't work in film, and the, the counselor is riddled with that. But this film isn't. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of things that she could. I know she cut down a lot from the book. She had to change a little bit here and there. There's talk of the ending being changed. I don't think, just from what I've read in terms of the it differences, seem like it's changed that much. It didn't seem that much. It's not like they they changed who who done it or who you it's know who not did even what as to who. Fincher ended the dragon, girl the dragon tattoo. Yeah, where there's all this sudden angle between Elizabeth Salander and the Daniel Craig character. I'm blanking on his name right now. Where he kind of added this whole little postscript to the movie. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard, I have not read the book, but from what I've heard, it's a pretty faithful adaptation. Yeah, and I think that that's what people appreciate. It's uh, Fincher's highest grossing film, if I recall correctly. That's amazing to me. Over $100 million for an R-rated movie that's violent and long. Um, it's pretty amazing. And so ho- hopefully more people will go back and um, rediscover other Fincher films. Um, Actually, not on my list. My, is that right? might surprise you, yeah. But I, I will tell you, though, one of the things I really appreciate about it was how it examined this kind of media frenzy yeah. that happens around these disappearance cases these yeah. murder cases like what makes them more special than others like what why are we so i mean granted i guess in the film 
Amy Dunn is the basis of this best-selling children's book series. So maybe that's not why they're bush. They're white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Summer was my number seven, guys. Um, Summer was my number ten, right? There you go. Um, well, I guess that means it's better. <laughs> Of course, yes. Um, but I, I love how there's in, there's uh, there's little kind of social media aspects to this too, where it's just how the media portrays people is is it for a lot of you know that's that's how America will think of you. And it doesn't even matter if there's any kernels of truth to it. Like mm-hmm. there's the thing where he first kind of has this uh, event where he is expressing uh, that his wife is missing and he needs help trying to find her. And this one woman, who may have been a friend of Amy, I'm not sure, but comes up to him kind of behind the scenes and wants to take a, a selfie with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just takes a picture with her, and you know, he's kind of, you got a picture about what his mindset is right now. He's yeah. all over the place. Just smiles in the picture as he would taking any normal picture. And suddenly he's being blasted on the news for not caring about Amy's disappearance. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of great little touches here, and it's just a really de- deceptive, manipulative performance by multiple actors in yeah. this film uh neil patrick harris getting cast much off type <laughs> he was excellent in this he movie was. i thought and meets with one of the more the one of the more uh <laughs> groan worthy deaths i think yeah. i've seen in quite some time i honestly felt petrified for this man in this movie well and and, and i think that that nick dunn ben affleck's character talking about what I mentioned about how it's slipping all the notions you had, he's fighting constantly that he isn't portrayed as not caring enough or yeah. he, you know, he doesn't or that he's not showing it's enough emotion. It's always someone or, else think he's constantly dissected mm-hmm. by everybody. I mean, yeah. he cannot win. You know, he cannot win. And and there's quite the resolution to that. I won't spoil it. <laughs> it's quite the there resolution. There's definitely quite the resolution. We try, and, we try and avoid spoiler talk on this yeah. show. Sometimes we can't help it, but we'll try and We'll try and get the spoiler alert warning out there before we get there. Yeah. Um, so number six is Gone Girl. Excellent choice, Ryan. Just missed my list. That was part one of the 2015 McShank Podcast Top 10 list. Stay tuned for part two coming soon.